Well, it's good to join you this morning at Citizens Church as we continue our studies through the book of Titus. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at this New Testament letter to Titus, a letter written to Paul's trusted colleague, a mandate to bring order to the troubled church in the island of Crete. In Titus chapter 1, Paul sets out the qualifications and responsibilities of church leadership. In chapter 2, he dealt with the issue of the roles and responsibilities of members within the church, particularly this issue of intergenerational discipleship of the older members being mentors to the younger. Now this morning in Titus chapter 3, Paul emphasizes the responsibility we have as Christians in the community. And this morning we want to think together of our life as believers in the community we live, living out our faith as Christians, as the church, in the community we find ourselves in. In a way, when we think of the book of Titus, we can think of it as three concentric circles. First of all, there's the roles of responsibility of leadership, that's chapter one. And then the second circle is there's the roles and responsibilities of the membership. And then this morning, the third, which is the responsibility of all of us towards the community of which we are a part. In his book, Loving God, Chuck Colson tells the intriguing story of the West Coast gangster, Mickey Cohen. In the 1930s, Cohen was associated with Al Capone's Chicago mob. By the 1950s, he had moved to the West Coast. He was the head of an underworld crime syndicate in Los Angeles. Off-track betting, gambling syndicates, racketeering, and all kinds of other questionable and just straight illegal activity. But something began to move in Mickey Cohen's heart. Was it guilt? Was it image control? Billy Graham was in the midst of an eight-week series a gospel campaign in Los Angeles, and thousands were attending nightly, and uh, many prominent people from Los Angeles, including movie stars, had gone forward to uh, make a profession of faith in Christ. And Cohen was very intrigued. So Mickey Cohen asked if he could have a secret meeting with Billy Graham. At the meeting, Graham explained the gospel to Cohen and he listened politely, although he didn't make a commitment of faith at that point in time. But other Christians began to make impact on Mickey Cohen's life. And reputedly, at some point in time, he became a, a believer. He committed his life or professed to commit his life to Christ. A number of people tried to disciple Mickey Cohen but they became really concerned when they discovered that he was still involved in all kinds of gangster activity and they confronted him with his behavior. And Mickey Cohen made this very famous statement. He said, there are Christian athletes, there are Christian businessmen, there are Christian movie stars, so why not a Christian gangster? Why not a Christian gangster? I, I don't know if anyone in the church in Crete was saying that, why be a Christian gangster? But certainly this passage of scriptures is very clear that uh, Christian gangsters are not in the cards. No, for the Christian, there's not only a new way of believing, there is also to be a new way of living. The gospel is not only to be a belief, it's to be a whole new way of life. So the passage declares that even though these Christians in Crete once lived in ways marked by antisocial behavior, what the Bible calls sin, now through the gospel they have been transformed to a new way of living. If you have a Bible, 
Uh, let's look together at Titus chapter 3 this morning, and we'll try and overview the whole passage and then look at it in detail. Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 and 2. Paul writes and says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So the Christians at Crete are reminded of what Christian behavior looks like, our responsibility to government, our responsibility to our society, to be law-abiding citizens, the kind of people that everyone would want as a next-door neighbor. Now continue in verse 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. These people in Crete are reminded of what their life was like before the gospel impacted them. They were antisocial, foolish, and sinful, living up to the Cretan reputation. Now read verse 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This describes their transformation by the gospel. They have been washed, they have been renewed, justified by grace, heirs of eternal life, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Now read verse 8. Now because of the gospel, here is how they are to behave. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And again, before the letter ends in verse 14, he repeats this same message. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This is gospel living. Now, I have looked at this passage and see it as what I would call, I hope you come with me on this, a sandwich of truth. There's, there's the first layer of the sandwich, which is verse 1 and 2, which talks about the need to live good and productive lives. Then in verse 3 to 7, there's what I'd call the meat of the matter. Live this way because you have been transformed by the gospel. Then there is the lower layer of the sandwich, verse 8 and 14, which repeats what was occurring in verse 1 and 2. Live good, productive, generous lives. Be devoted to good works. A sandwich of truth, layer 1, the meat of the matter, and then the bottom layer. So I think that that overview of Titus chapter 3 gives us a sense of the core message of the chapter. Our Christian behavior grows out of our Christian conversion. Our call to good works is because we have made a commitment to Christ. In other words, I'll put it this way, gospel transformation produces gospel living. Now let's look at the passage in a little more detail, but rather than starting with the top layer of the sandwich, I wanna start with the meat of the matter, verse three to seven, which I think is the core of the entire chapter. And then afterwards, we'll look at that upper and lower layer. 
And the meat begins with a very harsh description of sinful behavior, a description of what the readers were like before the gospel of Christ impacted their lives. Notice when Paul makes this statement in verse 3, not only does he include the Cretans in the statement, he includes himself. He says in verse 3, we ourselves, that is, I was once foolish. Paul says, this is actually my self-portrait without Christ. Do you know, when John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, he wrote it as actually his testimony. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And John Newton was not exaggerating. This verse could also be John Newton's portrait. For we ourselves, verse 3, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. What a depressing description of human failing. Paul uses this broad brush stroke to cover a wide range of human evil. Foolish, that is making bad choices. Disobedient, going our own way. Led astray, heading a dangerous direction. Slaves to passion and pleasure. In bondage, addicted, unable to break free. Filled with malice and envy. That is wishing revenge on our foes, that's malice, and jealous of others' success, envy. Hated and hating, relationships destroyed. As Paul uses this broad stroke, he touches on a whole range of human failure. Now, each failing didn't apply to every person in the Cretan congregation. But even though I may be innocent of charge one and two, I find myself convicted by charge four and five. And not only is the description broad in scope, it is specific and cuts deep. It gets right to the heart of the matter. This is why there is conflict or was conflict among you, he says, because of the sinful passions that control you. We are sinful by nature and sinful by practice. And this is why you are unable to live as you should. This is why we need the transforming power of the gospel. For only through the gospel can we deal with the power of sin. Now, this diagnosis of the human condition is very unpopular today, the issue of the sinfulness of humanity. I think it is quite politically incorrect. Starting with the Enlightenment right to the present day, the doctrine of original human sin and evil has been denied. John Locke, who was a 17th century philosopher, postulated the theory of what he called tabula rasa. Tabula rasa is Latin for meaning a blank slate. We are born as a blank slate. We are born neutral and then learn good and evil, said Locke. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was the French thinker of the 18th century, added a further insight. He stated that mankind is born good, but corrupted by culture. He has this very famous quote where he says, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Christianity teaches that we are indeed all made in God's image, that we have incredible potential for good and creativity, but we are also born with a bent for wrong and have a horrible propensity for evil. Now, I think as most of you know, Sharon and I have a, an incredible little granddaughter, Evangeline, She's almost two years old, and we love her to death. 
Her mom and dad are wonderful parents, and I, when I watch them, I feel somewhat put to shame at my own shortcomings as a parent. And, and they are working so hard to teach her what is right. And at present, they have entered into what I would call the food wars. Now, now I know in the big scope of things, it's relatively minor, but I have a question for you. Did they teach her to spit out her food when she doesn't want to eat it? Or did they teach her in anger to take her plate and throw it on the floor? No, unfortunately, that just comes naturally. We don't teach children to do wrong. No, quite the opposite. We struggle very hard to teach them what is right. Every year about this time, uh, the dandelions begin popping up in my yard, as they do all over town. And every year I try to eradicate them or at least reduce them just a little bit. I pull them, I spray them with Weed Be Gone. My neighbor uses this concoction of vinegar and soap. And when he's finished, it looks like a pack of dogs has gone wild on his yard. But every year those dandelions keep coming back. Now my lawn, that's different. I keep it, to keep it growing, I aerate it and I roll it and I fertilize it and I water it and sometimes I overseed it. And it takes all of that to keep my lawn somewhat healthy. But the dandelions, they remind me of my sin. All I have to do for them to proliferate, nothing. I don't have to do a thing. They grow all by themselves. Now I confess, as I grow older, this reality of my human failing and sin humbles me. In Christ, I have a new nature for which I am eternally grateful. But in my flesh, I still bear my old nature. John Newton, who is a, a fascinating character of, human, of, of Christian history, makes this very powerful comment. He says this, Whoever is truly humbled by their sin will not be easily angry or harsh or critical of others. Coming to grips with my imperfection can, if I allow it, make me more gracious with others. I wished I had learned this a lot sooner. My children are imperfect, and I am an imperfect parent. A good parent promotes growth. A foolish parent expects perfection. And for those of us who are married, we are imperfect people married to another imperfect individual. How many marriages have been destroyed because an imperfect husband expected that his wife should be perfect, or it could be vice versa? A good marriage was lost because a perfect marriage was expected. It was G.K. Chesterton, who was the Christian thinker of a previous century, the British writer, who said, original sin is the doctrine that has been thoroughly validated by thousands of years of human history. But, look at verse 4, Titus 3 verse 4, there is good news, for the gospel speaks to the issue of our human sin and failing. Titus 4 to 7 is actually one sentence. It's a very long sentence. Your English teacher might have told you to go back and revise it. But let me just read it to you one more time. Titus 4 uh, Titus 3, 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now some commentators believe that these verses could have been a pre-existing creed or hymn that Paul quotes, or it may have been something that Paul wrote himself. But whatever, it's a powerful summary of the Christian gospel. And rather than parse that statement from four to seven, verse by verse or word by word, I want to instead just leave you with a few key takeaways, actually just three key takeaways. In Titus 3, 4 to 7, here's the first takeaway I see. The gospel is not something we do. It is something that God has done. It is his goodness. It is his loving kindness. It is his mercy withholding from us what we deserve. It is his grace giving us what we did not deserve. In Christ, God has reached down and saved us. Through the cross, we are justified, made right with God. The gospel is not something I do. It is something that God has done for us. Here's the second observation I make. The gospel speaks to our past and to our future. Look in verse 5. There's two key words there, and they are the words washed and renewed. We are washed of our past, forgiven, cleansed. The past is gone. It's a clean start. Through the cross, sin has been dealt with. But there's a second word that looks to the future. Not only are we washed, but we are renewed. We're giving a new beginning. Renewed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Regenerated to live a, good, a new life. Given a hopeful future. Renewed so we can get beyond ourselves. Renewed so we can serve others. The gospel is not something we do. It is something that God has done. The gospel speaks to our past and to our future. Here's the third thing I see in these verses. It's very straightforward. We are blessed. God has poured his love into us in Christ. We are richly blessed through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are heirs with him, heirs of eternal life, a life that begins now and lasts forever. To quote John Newton again, when we think of salvation, here is what he says when we think of the cross. Newton says, may we sit at the foot of the cross and there learn what sin has done, what justice has done, and what love has done. This is the meat of the matter. The fallenness of our human condition, but thanks be to God, there is the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the implication of this transforming message of the gospel? The outcome is that we live transformed lives. It is a new life, and it's a new lifestyle. Unfortunately for Mickey Cohen, there are no rooms for Christian gangsters. Gospel proclamation leads to gospel living. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are called to a life of enthusiastic Christian service. One of the early missionaries to China put it this way, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then there is nothing that is too much for me to do for him. So Paul adds these logical conclusions to the teachings of the gospel. Look at Titus 3 and verse 8. 
He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Look at Titus 3.14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And he has previously said similar things in the chapters which go before. Titus 2 verse 7 says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus 2.14, the second part of the verse, To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That key phrase, good works, it leads me to ask the question, why is Paul so concerned about this issue of good works? Well, for one, it is a Christian's duty as well as their joy, but also because the behavior of us as Christians impacts the reputation of the gospel. Why are we to live lives of generous service and good good works? Uh, Look at uh, Titus 2 verse 8. Uh, Paul says, So that an opponent may have nothing evil to say about us. Titus 2 verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me close this morning by looking at the top layer of the sandwich of truth here, which is in Titus 3, verse 1 and 2. And these verses, I think, cut very close to home, for in the past 14 months of COVID-19, we have experienced a huge intrusion of government regulation in our personal business and in our church life. How are we to respond. Titus 3 verse 1 and 2. Let's read that together again. You can read it with me. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, as we well know, there are some Christians in our community who have decided that the demands of the government on the church through this time of pandemic have been overbearing. They feel that the right to freedom of worship, which is guaranteed in our Canadian Constitution, has been ignored or at least hasn't been taken seriously enough. They believe that the exception clause found in Acts chapter 5.29 apply to the church during covid Acts 5.29 was where the apostles were forbidden to preach Christ, and they did it anyway. For they said we must obey God rather than men. However, these verses we have just read in Titus 3, verse 1 and 2, are pretty clear. That submission to the authorities is our Christian calling. So when might this exception clause of Acts 5, verse 29 apply? Does it apply to us during this time of COVID shutdown? Is this a correct interpretation or is it not? Certainly the disruption on usual church worship over the past year has made us think about these issues. Recently I was reading uh, Paul Carter, who's a writer for the Gospel Coalition, and he was helping us to think about how should the church think about these issues Uh, in times of COVID. And, And what would set off this exception clause? And he gave three diagnostic questions to determine 
a decision as to whether or not the situation we find ourselves in is an exception. Here was the first question he said that we can ask. He said, are the restrictions obviously maliciously targeting the church? And I think the very clear answer is no. Stores are impacted, schools are impacted, theaters are impacted, even golf courses are closed. The church is not specifically being targeted. Here's the second question. Do the restrictions the government has brought absolutely and indefinitely forbid worship? In other words, is this similar to Acts 5.29 when they were forbidden to preach Christ? And again, the answer is no. Online ver uh, venues like what we're doing this morning are not ideal, but temporarily we can use them for good purposes. And throughout the lo lockdown, the church has been given more freedom to meet at certain points than any other group in society, than theaters or, or uh, stage plays or any other public gathering place. And we've been permitted to be creative. I, um, we have some very creative neighbors here in Woolwich Township, um, which are our old order Mennonite friends. And back last spring, when they, uh, when they discovered that a drive-in service was possible, uh, they put their heads together and said, well, if you can drive in cars, why can't you drive in buggies? So they began to hold uh, drive-in uh, services at their old order meeting house. Um, I, I, I was driving past the old order meeting house up on the 4th of Peel the other day, and they've created a box. I guess it's a preacher in a box. It's kind of like a, a little podium, and uh, it's in the corner of the parking lot. And the preacher there this morning will be standing in the box shouting as loud as he can to all the people in the buggies all around. I'm, I had an old order friend who was telling me that the poor preachers, because there's no, there's, they don't use microphones or megaphones. There's no amplification. The poor preacher has a sore throat for the next two days. But you know, the good news is in a few weeks, we'll be able to gather in person to worship once again. Hopefully in June, we can begin to worship again together. And I trust that I never again take the privilege of being able to worship together in person, that I never take that for granted ever again. So that's question one, question two. Let me come to the third question that we can use to diagnose whether we should have an exception clause. Have the restrictions been made in good faith? Has the government made these, description, uh, these, um, these restrictions because they feel it is in our best uh, good? Now, I, I should say that doesn't mean I agree with the, with the restrictions that have been put in place, all of them. And that isn't really the issue. The issue is, do the authorities believe they have done this for the public good? And no matter my opinion on the details, it appears that they have been done in good faith. So there's three questions we can ask as to whether does the exception clause apply. Are the restrictions obviously and maliciously targeting the church? And the answer is no. Do the restrictions absolutely and indefinitely forbid worship? And the answer is no. And third, have the restrictions been made in good faith? And I believe the answer is yes. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is gospel living. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, that these words of encouragement to the believers in Crete many years ago are still words of encouragement to us today. We thank you for the salvation you have provided for us through Christ alone. Now may we live as women and men transformed through the gospel, motivated to serve because of your love to us. Renew us and strengthen us for every good work through Jesus Christ. Amen.